Today's New Testament reading comes from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be holy to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in the scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people who, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Margot. Um, We have been, if you're joining us for the first time, we've been working our way through um, Peter's first letter. And what we've seen is that, so far, is that Peter addresses this group of new Christians. Um, Right at the beginning of his letter, he addresses them, in our translation it says, as elect exiles. Other translations call them um, strangers or resident aliens. And... um, You know, it's interesting, in the assurance of grace that we read this morning, Paul says to us that we are no longer strangers, and we are no longer aliens, but we are now members of the household of God. So which is it? Well, I think what Peter is saying to us is that as we become members of the household of God, that there's a sense in which, even in the place where we are born, even in the land that we know, that we become somewhat alienated. Um, that we become foreigners, um, that we journey towards a home that is ours, um, but we become somewhat estranged. Um, You know, the early Christians that Peter was writing to, for many of them, they lived in an environment, we might think of it as being non-religious. The Roman Empire was incredibly religious. It was very religious. It was very nationalistic as well. And, you know, Caesar was seen as king and God, Uh, Many times sacrifices would be made on behalf of the nation. And now you had this group of people who were not worshiping the same gods that everyone else was worshiping. They were not, they were honoring the emperors, we're going to see in a couple weeks, but they were honoring a king that was higher than the emperor above him. And that's what made them strangers. And so Peter's writing to them to encourage them, and Peter's writing to them to remind them of who they are so that they would not lose hope. 
that they've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, reserved in heaven for them. So before we think about that this morning, let me pray for us. Father, would your spirit be with us this morning as we come to your word? We thank you for your word, that it is always true, that it is given to us um, this morning because you have a deep love and care for us, that you want to know us, and you want us to know you. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us um, to understand this morning by your spirit that you would both convict us and comfort us and bring us once again to Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. It was a number of years ago, a few years back. Um, I didn't go back to look, out, look up when this show first came on. My wife and I got a little bit sucked in to the PBS drama. This is embarrassing to say already. The PBS drama Downton Abbey. Uh, uh, and we watched it maybe for a season or so. Maybe it was two seasons. And this show was set in the English countryside, if you've never seen it, at the turn of the last century. And um, it was on this huge estate that was called Downton Abbey. And the whole show kind of revolved around this tension that existed between this lavish aristocracy that lived upstairs um, and those, you got to go into the life of those who served this aristocracy that lived downstairs. And as I, as I kept watching the show, one of the things that, maybe it's one of the questions that they wanted you to ask, is where would I, if I were here, where would I be in this house? Um, who has the, maybe who has the better life? Because what you began to see is that this this aristocracy that had, who were basically, they had people to clothe them and serve them and wait on them and do everything for them. Many of them began to become envious of those who lived downstairs, who were the servants. And of course, many of the servants um, looked with disdain upon those who lived upstairs. And so the question is really, what is status in this world? What does it mean? Where would I be if I were in this place? And our world now is a pretty far cry, I imagine, for most of us from the English countryside, but we're still asking that question. We still deal with the question all the time. The question is, what, what, what makes me worthy in the world? What gives me importance? What gives me status? What says that I am somebody? And there's all sorts of answers for us to those questions all around us every day that are preaching to us. You have to realize when you leave church, it's not when preaching ends. Preaching continues throughout the week. And there's millions of things that are preaching to you. And they're saying, this is what it means for you to be important. This is what it means for you to have status. This is what it means for you to be worthy. And the question for us is, what makes us worthy? What gives us status? Because the way that we answer that question, in many ways, is going to dictate our lives. It's going to push us into certain areas. It's going to make us work on certain things. It's going to help us to um, construe an image that looks a certain way. And so Peter's writing to this newly formed, somewhat ostracized church. And he's telling them where their status is. He's telling them who they are. And and for us to understand what it means to be a community 
that is rooted and grounded, that stands firm in the gospel and stands firm in nothing else. What it means to live in the freedom of that gospel is offering us. We have to understand what this passage is getting at, what Peter's talking about. Because it's one of the most, it really is one of the most important passages in the New Testament when it comes to understanding who you are, what your status is, what your identity is. And remember, it's important because to belong to Jesus will mean to some degree that you might become a foreigner in the land of your birth. Because you now belong to a new world and you now belong to a new kingdom. And so I want this morning, I just want to talk about three things. I want to talk about our new status that we have and our new community that comes from that and then our new mission. Our new status, our new community, and our new mission. First of all, our new status. Notice when Peter, as he begins this passage, he begins by telling these people, as he's telling them who they are, he starts with what? He starts with Jesus. As you come to him. As you come to Jesus. And we've gone over this because this is where Peter starts the first The first step in the gospel, the first step in coming to Jesus is admitting that we need Jesus. And admitting that we need Jesus is inherently humbling. Because it's admitting that we needed the maker and the creator of the heavens and earth, the second person of the Trinity, to take on flesh and to come down and to find us, but not only to find us, but to give himself up for us, that we needed a perfect and spotless sacrifice. So the first step in the gospel is admitting our, hel- our helplessness and our weakness. And as, they, as we do that, and as we're honest about our situation, Peter says, we come to him, we come to Jesus, who was himself rejected by men. That Jesus was rejected by men. And I mean, we've become, if you've been in church at any length of time, this is not like shocking language to you. But it was incredibly shocking for, for the first, in the first century. Um, the, much of the New Testament is, is written to sort of get people past the shock that Jesus was rejected by men, that he was a crucified Messiah, that this was a stumbling block for the Jews, that it was foolishness, Paul said, for the Greeks. And we're used to that language, but the second person of the Trinity takes on flesh and he arrives in creation. And what happens is that he is rejected by men, that he's spit upon, that he's beaten, and that he's crucified. Why? Because we see status as something very different than Jesus sees it. We see it very different than Jesus sees it. Peter goes on to say that Jesus was choice and Jesus was precious in the sight of God. That Jesus was choice and precious in the sight of God and that Jesus' status in heaven was so secure that he was able to humble himself in this world. Jesus entered into creation knowing exactly who he was. That he was choice and he was precious and he offered himself to be rejected. He who was rich, as we've already heard this morning, became poor so that you, through his poverty, might actually become rich. This is the opposite of how we normally think of of status because what Christianity has done when Jesus ushers in the kingdom of heaven is it turns everything on its head. That what we thought would make us worthy doesn't anymore. That what we think is important is not anymore. And this is liberating if we understand it. 
I was, rib- I was re- um, listening a few years back to a, a show. Um, this is a second reference to um, public radio or TV. Sorry. Um, I'm a nerd, I guess. Uh, uh, to National Public Radio, they used to do this little, like, one or two minute segment. I don't think they do it anymore, called This I Believe. And they would basically have somebody on, and that person would just talk about what they believe. It could be anything. And I remember one time as I was, I was driving and that segment came on, um, I, I, re- I was moved to tears by what I heard because there was a mom who came on to talk about what she believed. And she was a Christian. And she had a son whose name was Will. And Will had chronic kidney failure. And this is what she said about her son. She said, I refer to Will as the least of men in the sense that Jesus uses the term. The least in the way that the world look, is the way that the world looks at my son. He is the least likely to be a contributor to any academic journals. He is the least likely to win any athletic competitions unless there's one for the most flexible human. And in Darwin's world, he is the least likely to survive due to multiple di- medical diagnoses and the 22 doses of medicine he currently takes each day. In spite of his circumstances, Will is joyful and absolutely content. I blame my circumstances for my bad attitude. Yet even when they change, it is never enough. It is my heart that is discontent. I know where to find rest, yet I run to other things. Will seems to dwell in the place of peace. And I believe that it is the kindness of God to give a woman who is proud and arrogant a three-year-old teacher who demands nothing more than all six verses of the wheels on the bus. I am grateful to have a lifetime to spend learning from this new teacher of mine. Isn't that what we crave? Isn't that what we crave? A joy that is not dependent upon our circumstances, no matter how crummy they might be? Don't we crave the freedom to lay down the pursuit of trying to make ourselves important because we're utterly convinced of this, that we already are? Again, and friends, if you believe in Christ this morning, this is who you are and nothing can change it. Why? Because what Peter is telling us is that this is all by grace, that you did nothing to deserve it. It is the free and marvelous and gracious gift of God that as God dwelled in the tabernacle amongst the Israelites, that he now dwells inside of you, his bride. This is part of what made those early Christians so strange, is that they no longer had a temple, and they no longer had priests, because Peter says that they now are a royal priesthood. That they didn't have somebody that went before them to offer sacrifices to God because Jesus had already gone before them into the heavenly places and they were united with Jesus. It's hard to wrap our minds around how beautiful and how wonderful and how glorious and how mysterious that actually is. This is why we have to come back as we sing praise to God and we hear from him again and again that this is absolutely true of you right now. You are loved. You are eternally loved by the maker and the creator of the heavens and earth through the finished work of Jesus Christ, his son. That is your status. That is why as we're gathered to worship, we can say, what else do I have to fear? As we said in Psalm 118. It's why we can say, do not put your trust in man. Based of how we normally view our faith. And that we normally view it very individualistically, 
That, it's, it's, that we normally view it sort, sort of about me and Jesus and my Bible and my ability to somehow become more moral. And it's not, so Peter's saying this is not just about you individualistically cleaning your life up so that you might be proud of your spiritual achievements. It's about the church of God, the bride of Christ, coming together as a people who've been called out of darkness and into light so that they might proclaim that this God is majestic and excellent and worthy of all praise. I got to watch the church this week do that. One of the beauties, I think, of watching um, something like Art Camp, hopefully it benefits the kids and they love it, but as I watch people come together as the church, um, this, you see, it's like stones being built on the cornerstone of Jesus, and they're serving and loving, and I, I, it, I love it. Thank you. And what this means as a community is that we are all... When you walk through this door, what you should be reminded of is that everywhere else in the world, you are being measured by what you produce. You are, we live in a meritocracy that says, I am what I do. And when you walk through this door, hopefully the aroma that fills your nostrils, um, maybe even the smell as, and, as, and the noises associated with worship reminds you of the fact that my God, thank God, does not operate that way. That I have a status of aristocracy and royalty beyond my wildest imagination because he has chosen to have mercy upon me. That he is a God of grace. And it is through the merit of Jesus that I now belong to the household of God. We are dead people who have been brought back to life. That's it. We are now one who are in Christ. Our status is not based on the color of our skin. It's not based on the nation that we belong to. It's not based on the money that's in our bank account. It's not based on the significance of our last name or a genealogy because we have a new name and we have a new genealogy. It's simply this. You are a Christian. You are a little Christ. You are now united with Christ. And together you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And that means black, that means white, that means Mexican, that means Cuban, that means Iranian, that means Russian, that means rich, that means poor, that means educated, that means uneducated. Those who are in Christ are one in Christ, and they all have the exact same status. And so what are we supposed to do together? I can only touch on this, but the rest of the letter will tell us more is that we have a new mission, and it's found in two places in this passage. The first is verse 5, is that we're to, to, together, together, to offer up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so just like those early Christians, as we no longer worship the gods of our own society, we live in a very religious society as well. And our, we have gods of our own. And we have many things that our culture tells us that we need to bow down to in order to be worthy. And part of our spiritual sacrifice is saying, I worship the one and true God who by his grace through Jesus has brought me into his family. And what Peter is saying is that that will involve sacrifices. But secondly, in verse 9, he says that our new mission is that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And the reason I say this is so tied to community 
and that this is not a solo venture that you're being drawn to, even there's, there's obviously individual responsibilities to this, is that God is calling the church to come together as a spiritual house so that we might together proclaim and declare his praise and how excellent he is. That there is something significant about what we're doing right now. There's something beautiful about the way that we worship in the midst of a city that might be tempted to worship a lot of other things. That we gather together and we stop on the first day of the week, the day that Jesus rose from the dead, and we say, you know who is Lord? Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. And we pause to sing him praise. There is something incredibly, you might not feel like that's something that's that big of a deal. It is an incredibly big deal. And Christians have been doing it for 2,000 years. And it will never end until Jesus comes back, no matter what. They'll continue to do it. This is the mission of the church. It's the mission of the entire body that we're joining this morning, our voices with around the world. They all look different. They use different languages. They sing different songs. They might worship in different ways. And we are declaring the same thing, that Jesus is Lord. We're not declaring our own agendas. We're not declaring ourselves. We're not declaring our individual status. We're proclaiming that he is excellent and he brings those who are in darkness into light. And you know, when we get that and when we start to understand that that is who we are, that we are dead people who've been made alive again, that we were ones who were in darkness who've been brought into life, that we were once not a people, but now we are the very people of God. That should never produce pride in us. It actually should produce the opposite. It produces humility. It produces humility. It frees you from the burden of trying to be someone, to be someone thin or smart or funny, because it says you are someone. You already are someone. You were one who has been shown mercy. And that allows you to see your value as not just in the the prominent places of this world, but it allows you to see that this frees you. If you already know who you are, it frees you to go, as Jesus did, and to follow his path into places that are dark, into places that are difficult. That might be places in your own family. That might be places in your neighborhood. It might be the factory line that you work on. It might be um, the diaper-changing table. It might be amidst some of the people who the rest of the world sees as unvaluable and unworthy and worthless. I read the other day um, about a man who... He, he was going to talk to a woman named Dorothy Day. You may have heard of Dorothy Day before. She's written a few books. But um, she, was, she worked in New York as she opened these Catholic worker homes for people, for really the people who had nowhere else to go. So she worked among the poor in New York, mainly among the Depression era. And at this point, when this guy was going to talk to her, it was one day after church, and he said that he walked up. And she was already pretty well known at this point. She had already written some books. And she was talking to this woman on the curb who was apparently pretty drunk and really filthy. And they were engaged in this conversation. And so he stood there waiting. And he said, finally, um, she stopped her conversation and looked at him. And she just simply said, are you waiting to talk to one of us? And it was such a simple statement. But he said it spoke volumes that she didn't assume that he was there to talk to her. Because the person that she was talking to was made in the image of God, and she was infinitely important as well. That knowing who we are in Christ, it produces humility. I quoted on the front um, at the beginning of our bulletin from 
um, a Christian professor named James Smith. In his speech he gave one time called Dreaming Small, he talks about proclaiming these excellencies in the little areas of our lives, of doing small things for God, um, in the grocery store line, in the neighborhood, in the office cubicle. And he asked this question, can you dream small enough that you can find joy and significance in the texture of a neighborhood? Are you willing to follow our incarnating God who, when he came to dwell in the neighborhood of humanity, did not relocate to Rome, but moved to the other side of the tracks in tiny Nazareth? As you and the church come together, as you come to him, as you come to Christ, a stone that was rejected by men but it was choice and precious in the sight of God and you love one another through Christ and you love one another, those around you because Christ has loved you, you are doing the mission of the church. You are doing, I would say, the most important thing on this planet. And the mission might not ever get headlines, and the mission probably won't look that sexy. It is the faithful offering up of spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. It is self-denial, not self-promotion. It is loosening the grip on my own rights so that I might lift up my neighbor. This is what Jesus has done for us. Jesus belonged to the greatest aristocracy that has ever existed. And the incredible, amazing, awe-inspiring thing for you this morning is that you now belong to it too. You were part of it. You've been invited in. Why? Because Jesus came downstairs. He became poor so that you might be rich. And as we live in the world and as we bear his name as Christian, we move in the same direction, that our status is permanent and our status cannot be changed. It has been given to us, and it allows us to take the downward path, to move towards those who are in darkness and proclaim how excellent he really is, how wonderful his grace is, how his grace is for anyone and for everyone who will come to Jesus. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you for Jesus, and we thank you for his finished work, for his obedience, for his love. We thank you that because of him, we can sit here this morning in your presence, that we can boldly come before you without fear, without fear of condemnation, because Jesus has borne the condemnation on our behalf. And Father, I pray that you would help us as a body of Christians um, to see how we might together as a body proclaim the excellencies of him who brought us out of darkness and into light. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.